Father, we thank you for the cross that calls us to give our all. We pray that you would give us grace to respond as you desire. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. And I'm going to ask you to participate a little bit this morning. You know, it makes, makes you nervous. But we, I suspect we all have some kinds of traditions or rituals that are a part of our lives. Maybe things your family did when you were growing up. Maybe things you've established as part of your family now. And I was just curious if three or four people might be willing to take just a minute to share something about one of your family traditions or rituals. Just stand up where you are and give us a brief summary of that. Probably so. Seymour Street. <laughs> Thank you. Anybody else? That's awesome. I saw someone stand up over here. Sandy? Uh, in my family of origin, we 
<laughs> That's terrific. Thank you very much for sharing. We all have these kinds of traditions. I was thinking about this myself. One of my, one of my, our family traditions growing up was going to church camp in the summer, and you know it was fun. We had a cabin there, and I'm sure it, I didn't enjoy it because we went to church three times a day, but because of the snack bar, you get ice cream all the time. It was awesome, and friends to play with, and. And, you know, we would, uh, as a family, join, there's about usually 20 of us, we'd go to a baseball game in Cincinnati every summer. And our family now, we got into tradition when John was just a toddler of on Thanksgiving Day watching the Disney movie, The Happiest Millionaire. And we typically do that most Thanksgiving still. And we all know the songs to that, and we all can feed the lines to each other after all these years. And we watched the Christmas Carol, Scrooge, the 1951 version that we watched when I was a child. And now we still watch it. And even though Ted Turner has colorized it, we like the black and white version. There's something about that that we like. We have all these traditions. And, and I think we have these traditions and they're meaningful to us. And we, and we gravitate toward those because God created us with those. He created us to want those and desire those. We look at the scriptures and God is continually telling his people, there are things that I want you to do. And I want you to do these, some of these things I want you to do weekly. Some of these things I want you to do monthly. Some of these things I want you to do yearly. Some of them are every seven years. Some of them every 50 years. But I want you to, to do these things, these rituals, these traditions. They're important. And the question that's come to my mind is, if we have traditions and rituals that are valuable and special to us, and God has said, here are some that are good for you, why is it that we struggle in the church with rituals and traditions? We have a tendency to say, I don't think we should do that. I don't want to be a part of that. And I think it's because it, sometimes rituals become ritualistic. And traditions become meaningless. They're empty. And, and they're just obligations that we fulfill. When you look at the first couple of verses of Luke 22, it says it was Passover time. And what are the religious leaders doing? Getting ready for the Passover? No, they are plotting to frame Jesus so they can murder him. That ritual is completely empty, meaningless to them. It, it, has, it has no bearing on their lives. When I thought about, think about that, I, it, I, what I have in my mind is a, an image of, them, of a mafia don ordering a hit on his way to mass. Or Christians picketing at a soldier's funeral and hurling invectives at the people who are grieving. Or leaving worship and getting into an argument about who has a better understanding of the church or worship or who gets to use the church. And sometimes these rituals feel empty and meaningless. Years ago, I read a story about a guy who became a believer and people told him he should spend time every day in scripture, reading the scriptures, meditation, prayer. And so he did. He started out five or 10 minutes and, and he went into his bedroom and it was really meaningful time. And as he went along, he kept spending more and more time doing this. And it became the time he looked forward to more than anything else. And he loved it, but, and so did his cat. His cat loved it. His cat would 
crawl around his leg and climb up on his lap. And he found it to be very distracting. And so he put the cat out and closed the door. But all that, the cat just stood at the door and meowed at him the whole time. And so he, that was even more distracting. So he let the cat in. And he finally figured out that what he would do is tie the cat to the bedpost. And worked fine. The cat would just stay in a little area, lay on the floor. It was fine. And he had his, his devotional time. When his daughter got older, she wanted to carry on this tradition that she'd seen so, so meaningful to her father. And so she too would set aside time to go into her bedroom and to pray and to meditate and to read the scriptures. And, the, and she had a cat and the cat loved to be there too. And she tied the cat to the bedpost every day. And, 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 but her time was, she was a little busier and she didn't spend an hour. She spent 15, 20 minutes. When her son got older and he started his family... He wanted to carry on the family traditions as well. But his life was even busier. And so he decided that he didn't have time for prayer or meditation or reading of scripture. But he wanted to carry on the tradition. So every morning we got dressed, he tied the cat to the bedpost. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like we're just tying cats to bedposts. But it doesn't have to be that way. The problem is not the ritual. The problem is not the tradition. The problem is us. The problem is what we bring to it. See, these rituals, these traditions, everything that God designs for us is about remembering. It's about engaging with God. They're intended to help us engage God and mostly about remembering who God is and who we are. And so you look back at the Old Testament festivals and, and God says to them... The Passover, you're going to do this every year. And here's why. Every time you do this, you remember, I brought you out of Egypt. You didn't do this on your own. I'm the one that got you out of there. I'm the one that established you as a nation. And you need to remember that. I want you to remember it every day. But at the very least, once a year, set aside time to remember. The Feast of Pentecost, the time when they bring in the harvest. Remember, everything you have is because I've blessed you. The Feast of Tabernacles or Booths is a reminder to them that they lived in the wilderness 40 years because they rejected God. And yet God still was faithful to them. And they go out and they set up these little lean-tos and they live in them to remind them that even though they rejected God and that's why they were in the wilderness, he cared for them. And the Feast of Purim is intended to remind them that God rescued them from death. Through Queen Esther. And all of these, all of these rituals, all of these traditions are intended to remind them. They don't have to be empty. They can be powerful for us. And so Jesus says to his disciples, I want to, I want to engage with you in the Passover. You would think, if, as meaningless as this ritual is to some of the people, particularly the religious leaders... And how much that trickles down into the people, we don't know. But you can imagine Jesus saying, look, that thing is so messed up. Let's not do that. Instead, he says, I want to embrace this. I want you to understand why we're doing this. And, of course, he brings his new dynamic into it by talking about his broken body and his shed blood. And he says to them, every time you do this, every time you eat the bread and drink the cup... Remember, remember, remember. What is it we remember when we come to this table? 
we remember our sin. We remember that the cross, this table, is necessary because of our sin. And we acknowledge that we have sinned. This table challenges us to acknowledge the ways in which we reject God and how we hurt one another and make selfish decisions. All of the ways in which we sin, we're confronted at this table. I don't know if the right word is ironic or sad or tragic, but it intrigues me that as Jesus is, is sharing with them this most deep moment about the, his shed blood and his broken body, it's surrounded by sin. You have the betrayal of, Je- of Judas. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. And that starts a whole conversation of, of the, where the disciples start arguing with each other. And it moves from who's the worst to who's the best. I have in my mind this, the, this conversation as Jesus talks to them about one of you is going to betray me. And they're saying, it's not me. It's not me, is it? I wouldn't do that. And from I wouldn't do that to I wouldn't do that because I'm the best. I'm Jesus' favorite. I'm closer to Jesus than anyone else. No, you're not. I am. No, you're not. I am. No, I am. And this whole, and I can see Jesus sitting there as this conversation intensifies and gets louder and louder. And he's, I, I almost picture him rolling his eyes and saying, oh, my goodness, I've lost con- complete control of the room here. He says, guys, stop. Don't you remember how many times I have to tell you, my kingdom is not who's the greatest. It's about who serves. It's about surrendering yourself, giving up your rights, being vulnerable, just like I have done with you and I'm going to do on the cross. This table confronts our natural human instinct to avoid the truth about ourselves. And it calls us to acknowledge our sin, to repent, to be honest. But as much as this table is about our sin and about us, it is far more about Christ. It is about God's grace. It is Jesus' broken body and shed blood, not ours. He says, every time you do this, remember me. What I've taught you, what I am doing for you. Remember all of the promises I've made to you. Remember that my kingdom is about grace. Yes, you all are going to struggle with sin. When you come to this table, you acknowledge your sin. But your sin can be absorbed in my grace if you will let me. This is a table of grace and mercy and love. This is a sacrament of grace and mercy and love. Every time you do this, remember what I've done for you. And give thanks. And open your heart and let me fill you with my grace and my spirit. That's why John Wesley referred to this as a means of grace. We come to this table and there are lots of things about, this, about this, the Lord's Supper that we can't quite wrap our minds around. 
We are encountering the mystery of God. We are encountering the mystery of the cross. There's so much that we simply cannot fully explain. But as we come, we remember God's grace. And we receive it. And we rejoice in his love and mercy poured out upon us through the cross. Every one of us. This table is not intended to exclude us. It is intended as an invitation for all who yearn for God. Even if we don't understand everything about the kingdom. Even if we haven't got all of our ducks in a row. We have a yearning for God. He says, come. When you look around that table, honestly, it's a messed up group of men. But Jesus says, my broken body, my shed blood. Remember, this is about my grace poured out upon you. Take, eat, drink the cup. And I am convinced that this ritual and all of the Christian rituals that we practice are intended to be experienced in community. You know, so often we, we get wrapped up in me and Jesus. And there's a place for that. It's important. But ultimately, the kingdom is about us and Jesus. And this is a table that invites us It's a table we practice as a community, as the body of Christ. With all of our diversity, all of our differences, all of the different journeys that we are on, this table brings us together as we acknowledge our sin and as we acknowledge God's grace. Paul talks about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one loaf. And we come together as one in him. It's one of the reasons I I love when we take communion, walking to the front. As you see all the diversity of who we are and all the diversity of our journeys. And yet we are united in the bread and the cup through the grace of God in Christ. I've talked to you about this before and I'm not ashamed to admit it but I like watching the Food Network I'm secure enough in my manhood that I can admit the fact that I I like watching the Food Network I don't just watch it because Cindy likes it I I enjoy watching some of the shows on the Food Network you realize most of the chefs are male which you know adds some you know maleness to the whole thing but it's interesting to me as we watch some of these cooking competitions. There is a pattern that I see developing almost every single episode. There is almost always at least one, if not more, of the chefs that are competing who, if you met them on the street, you would never guess they were a chef. You might think they were in a bodybuilding competition or you might think they were part of a gang Or you might think any of those kinds of things. Because you look at them and I mean they are, you know, they have so many muscles. And they wear short, you know, t-shirts that are just bulging. They have tattoos all over them. 
And you look at them and you can tell they, they've lived a rough life. And as their stories begin to emerge, they talk, many of them talk about how they have come out of drug addiction or alcohol addiction or other kinds of self-destructive behaviors. And they have found their way. But one of the things I find fascinating is as they stand before usually a panel of judges and they begin to talk about this dish that they prepared and they are asked, what inspired you to, to cook this? Many of them will say, it was because of thinking about my grandmother or my mother, sometimes a father or an aunt. And as they begin to tell their story, some of these great big burly men just lose it. I mean, some of them are weeping so much, they can't even talk. You know, they're turning their heads away and wiping their eyes and trying to act like they're just peeling onions. But they are, you know, they are so moved emotionally as they think about these people in their lives that are still driving what they do. And that dish sitting there in front of that judge is, is inspired by remembering these people who have so greatly influenced them. And it strikes me as an apt metaphor for this table. That we come to this table engaging all of our senses because remembering is not just with our minds. It's with our hearts, our emotions, our actions, our relationships, every part of our being. When we think about remembering, we come to this table and it ought to, it ought to just strike us with a sense of awe. As we remember and sorrow about our sin and rejoice about God's grace. God's grace that redeems us from our sin and forgives us and sets us free and gives us life that we don't deserve but are offered freely. And I wonder what would happen to our worship, to our church, to our families, places where we work, our lives, this town and the other towns where you may live. If every time we came to this table, the memory of who we are and the memory of what Christ has done grabs a hold of us. Gracious Father, we thank you for the gifts you give us. And mostly we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. For your grace poured out upon each of us, undeserving as we are. Father, we acknowledge our sin. And Father, we celebrate your grace. We pray that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup. 
that as we eat and drink, this will be food for our souls. That we will be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. That we will know the blessing of the risen Christ in each of our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.